Let's, uh, let's open in a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we come to You this morning because we need Your help. Father, we are Your creation and You are our Creator. And Father, we defer to You this morning. We recognize Your authority. We recognize Your supremacy. And Father, as we open up Your Word, I would just ask today that You would make it fresh in our hearts. That You would use it to inspire us, to motivate us to become more like Your Son, and to live boldly for Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a saying that I think is going to be less familiar to some of you, but nevertheless, you may have heard it before. Have you ever heard the saying, the loudest voice always wins? Raise your hand if you've heard that saying, the loudest voice always wins. Okay, a few of you, a few of you. It's a, it's a peculiar saying, it's a unique one. It, it basically means this. It means that whoever has the loudest voice, in other words, the person or the group of people who speak their agenda or state their case with great vigor and forcefulness, such people usually end up getting what they want. If they state it strongly enough, they usually end up getting what they want. But of course, as one pastor has also put it, the loudest voice you can hear may not be God's. The loudest voice you can hear may not be God's. And such is the case in our story today in Mark. We are continuing on in the Gospel of Mark this morning. And we are in chapter 14. And in our study today, we're going to be encountering two stories. Two stories. With two different scenarios in which the loudest voice wins the day. On the one hand, we're going to see Jesus coming before a large group of accusers, false witnesses. And their many, many accusations are going to force Jesus into a corner. Their loud voices are going to win the day. But their voices aren't filled with God's wisdom. And on the other hand, we're going to see another story with Jesus' disciple Peter. Peter who will face three consecutive accusations that he is an associate of Jesus. But Peter, his voice grows louder with each allegation against him. And in the end, Peter will boldly curse and swear that he doesn't even know Jesus. His increasingly defiant tone will win the day. And his accusers will back off. But God's truth is far from Peter's lips. So in two separate stories this morning, we're going to see Jesus' accusers and Peter use loud and forceful words. They're, They're going to state their case with great vigor. They're going to accuse and make defense with great force. And they're going to get what they want. Jesus' accusers are going to get a guilty verdict. Peter is going to be exonerated from those who accuse him of associating with Jesus. 
But as is plainly obvious, while the loudest voice may win the day, forceful words are often filled with great folly and shame. The loudest voice you can hear may not be God's. The title of my message today is The Folly of the Loudest Voice. The Folly of the Loudest Voice. And I want you to turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 14. As you're turning, you're going to see a a picture there of uh, Jesus bound and Peter. Again, this is from the same artist I cited last week. His name is Michael O'Brien. He's a a Catholic artist. He does beautiful, beautiful paintings, particularly of the Passion Week, the last week of Christ's life. And and this one, again, we're seeing... we're, we're, We're entering a familiar story. But I wanted us to see it fresh. I want us to see it fresh for the first time. So turn to Mark chapter 14. We're going to read beginning in verse 53. We're going to get all the way to 72 this morning. So we're going to progress a little bit quickly. But let's start with 53 and 54. It says this, And they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with Him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. But Peter followed Jesus at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. We see Jesus here arrested by an angry mob and taken before the high priest. We learn in some of the other Gospel accounts that this was Caiaphas, the high priest. And in fact, uh, it's really interesting because in Israel today, they believe they have located the home of the high priest Caiaphas. And in fact, they believe that this trial took place in a home, not the temple, not not some other precinct, but in fact, the very home of the high priest. And my wife and I and and my father-in-law and mother-in-law, we got a chance to actually be in this home where they believe Jesus would have been tried at this moment. This place is still uh, in Israel today. It's still viewable. And Jesus is taken before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish council of the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. And we see Peter here following at a distance, which really shouldn't be too surprising because Peter, of course, not hours ago, declared that he would be loyal to Jesus until the end. And so, Peter is is following. He's trying to be with his leader here, even to death. Now, the story is going to return to Peter in just a moment. But first, we're going to hear a loud chorus of accusers against Jesus. Take a look at 55 through 59. It says this, Now, the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put Him to death but they found none. Many bore false witness against Him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against Him, saying, We heard Him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But even then did their, but, but not even then did their testimony agree. Now, I want to pause here just for a moment because I think this is a real peculiar uh, sequence of events. I want to pose the question, what is the primary thing a judge needs to issue a warrant for an arrest? What is the primary thing a judge needs 
to issue a warrant for an arrest. Evidence, right? Evidence. Evidence is what a judge needs to issue an, an order for an arrest. Am I right, Lou? Probable cause. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I tried, Lou. I tried to represent well. Lou, out of the office of the district attorney, is correcting me. I apologize. You need probable cause, not evidence. I'm sorry. Bear with me, Lou. You need evidence. You need evidence to issue a warrant for an arrest. When the evidence is adequate, the arrest order is given. But here, in Mark 14, the evidence against Jesus is not only grossly inadequate, it hasn't even been compiled. It hasn't even been compiled. And so one scholar writes this, he says, he says, Mark's account reads not as a trial on an already formulated charge, but as a search for a charge which could be made to stick. But while the charge was not yet decided, the verdict was. I couldn't have put it better. Return to the text, friends. Look at verse 55. Mark makes it very clear. The aim of the religious leaders was to kill Jesus. The charges were not yet decided, but the verdict was. And in an effort to exact capital punishment upon Jesus, many witnesses are brought forward. In verse 56, we see person after person coming before the council to speak ill of Jesus. But it says their testimonies did not agree. And this is a significant statement in Mark. This indication that the testimonies didn't agree. Because as many of you probably know, in Jewish law, it was only on the basis of two witnesses that an accusation could be heard, could be verified, could be validated. And so... In the eyes of the Jewish culture, until they had two witnesses who could agree on the same accusation, they had no evidence. They had no probable cause. Another accusation comes forward in verse 58. Notice what it says. Verse 58. Another rose up and said, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. Mark writes, but even then their testimony did not agree. But here we find a peculiar accusation, and this is one that contributed really to the death of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake. Even though it wasn't verified, even though it wasn't validated before the council, the fact that Jesus, in their eyes, had denounced the temple was a serious, serious charge that contributed to His death. Um, now, Jesus had, in fact, made a statement similar to the one that He's accused of in verse 58. He had said in John chapter 2, verse 19, that tear down this temple and I will raise it back up in three days. But, of course, He wasn't talking about the temple in Jerusalem. He was talking about the temple of His body. He was giving a prophecy about His own body being 
put to destruction and raised up three days later. And they had misappropriated that comment as a comment against the Jerusalem temple. And many other accusations came forward, but we're going to see here in verse 60 that Jesus remains silent. Look at verse 60 and 61. Then the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent, and He answered nothing. The high priest rose up because there was a moment where there were so many giving testimony, so many bearing witness that it was, it was enough. Jesus wasn't responding to any of them. And so finally, the leader of the council stood up and said, aren't you going to answer? Aren't you going to respond to these accusations? And Jesus remained silent. Have you ever gotten the silent treatment from someone you ever, ever had a spouse give you the silent treatment or a child or uh, another friend or family member? You uh, maybe somehow had offended them and, and uh, they, just, they were not speaking to you for a time? It's frustrating, isn't it? It's, uh, it's not an enjoyable time being the recipient of the silent treatment. And so we can probably understand quite well that the high priest, Caiaphas, was unmistakably perturbed at Jesus. He was frustrated. He wanted Jesus to die. And he was angry that Jesus was not answering these accusations. And so he rises up and he says, aren't you going to say anything? Aren't you going to answer these accusations? Jesus stays quiet. And here we come to the very important end of verse 61. It says, But Jesus kept silent and answered nothing. And again, the high priest asked Him, saying to Him, Are You the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Are You the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now, as we established earlier in verse 55, the intent of the council was to kill Jesus. They hadn't even compiled the evidence, but the verdict was in. Jesus was to die. The town wasn't big enough for the two of them, the temple authorities and Jesus. And so they, we can be reasonably sure that they were not amassing this trial, this hastily midnight contrived trial to find an accusation that would put Jesus in jail. We can be sure that that was not their intent. It was not the high priest's hope that Jesus would affirm an accusation that would land Him in jail. It was His hope that Jesus would affirm an accusation that would land him on the cross. So, in verse 61, when we see this question come from the high priest's lips, we can be reasonably sure that this was a very strategic question. We should grant the probability that it was a question that, if answered in the affirmative, would warrant a death sentence. The question, are you the Christ, 
the Son of the Blessed. Now, uh, I think at face value, many of us look at that question and we think, well, yeah, I know what that means. It's, it's a very simple question. It's very straightforward. But in fact, it's a very complicated question. And uh, scholars throughout the centuries have gone back and forth as to the full implications of this question. It is actually not a question very easily understood. And as uh, R.T. France writes in verse 61, we'll take a look at his comments, initial comments about verse 61. He says this, It is generally agreed among scholars that a claim to be the Messiah by itself, even if false, could not properly be regarded as blasphemous. Let me say that again. France writes, it is generally agreed, the consensus among Christian scholars, that a claim to be the Messiah by itself, even if false, could not be properly regarded as blasphemous. Now, note the words by itself. France is suggesting, and I believe rightly so, that there were so many different conceptions in Jesus' day there were so many different conceptions of who the Messiah was going to be that in order to rightly punish a person for falsely claiming to be Messiah, the religious leaders would have to ask them, what kind of Messiah are you claiming to be? Let me say that again. In order to rightly punish a person for falsely claiming to be the Messiah, the religious leaders would have to ask them, what kind of a Messiah are you claiming to be? As we've learned earlier in our study in Mark, they had so many conceptions of who the Messiah would be. Some said He'd be political. Some said He'd be militaristic. Some said He'd be very spiritual in nature. Some said He'd be a king. Others said He'd be a prophet. Some said He'd be a priest. Some said He'd be a man. Some said He'd be divine. And any combination of those Therein. The punishment levied on a person who falsely claimed to be the Messiah or the Christ was to be in proportion to what kind of Messiah they claimed to be. And look closely at verse 61. Caiaphas qualifies. He qualifies what kind of Messiah he is talking about. He strategically asked Jesus, Are you the Christ? But he doesn't stop there. He adds a qualification. He adds the kind of Christ that I'm asking is this. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Of the many ideas of who the Messiah would be in first century Jewish culture, and there were numerous, of the many ideas that there were, of who the Christ would be, I argue that this description is the highest conception of all. Caiaphas was not merely asking Jesus if he was a great leader like King David. An affirmative answer to that question would have only landed Jesus in jail for a time. No, Caiaphas was asking Jesus if he was the very Son of the Blessed One, the Messiah Son of God. An affirmative answer to that question would be Jesus' death sentence. How would Jesus answer? Notice verse 62. 
Jesus said to Caiaphas, I am. I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus affirms Caiaphas' question. He affirms, yes, I am the Christ, the kind of Christ that is also called the Son of the Blessed. Jesus claims that the Sanhedrin, that, that Caiaphas and all those present will one day see Him And he says two things. One, sitting at the right hand of the power. And two, coming with the clouds of heaven. I want to explore that just a moment. Let's bring up the explanation of those two comments. First, sitting at the right hand of power. That is to say, the place of highest honor and authority awaiting the time to judge His enemies. And on your handout, I've listed Psalm 110.1, which is where Jesus is getting this language. He's quoting from an Old Testament text. And in that text... It's indicated that the one who is seated at the right hand of God is at the highest place of honor and he's sitting there because he is awaiting the time to judge his enemies. Secondly, coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus pulls, draws this from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And earlier in Mark, in chapter 13, that we studied not even a month ago. And this means to judge to rule, and to receive worship. And so you can see now, with this, more, uh, with this fuller explanation, that Jesus' affirmation to Caiaphas' question was indeed a dramatic one. Jesus says, in no uncertain terms, I am the Messiah, Son of God. Not merely a Messiah, Son of David. Not merely a great political leader. Not merely a strong religious zealot. I am the Messiah, Son of God, Messiah. I am the highest conception of Messiah that exists in your thinking, Caiaphas. And the time is coming when you, you all, Sanhedrin, Jesus says, The time is coming when you who judge me this day will be judged by me on the last day. In saying this, Jesus claims to fulfill every aspect of the office of God's Christ. And so it shouldn't surprise us that with this claim, the high priest and all those with him were absolutely beside themselves. They... Jesus' judges were being told by Jesus, I will judge you one day. I will judge you one day. Verse 63. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned Jesus to be deserving of death. What is, uh, what is especially uh, troubling and, and 
fascinating to me in this text is that it never even seemed to occur to Caiaphas or the religious leaders with him to consider whether or not Jesus was who he claimed to be. They didn't even consider the merits of Jesus' claim. Jesus had just said, I am the highest conception of Messiah in your thinking. I am the highest conception of Messiah in all of Jewish thought. And their immediate, knee-jerk reaction was to say, that can't be. That can't be. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Have you ever heard something outrageous? Have you ever heard something that you had just a knee-jerk reaction to? You immediately wanted to dismiss it as false? You know, I, I've often, in, earlier on in my life, um, I grew up in a Christian environment in which uh, the miraculous or like uh, uh, maybe someone who claimed to have some sort of miracle occur to them or perhaps had uh, some sort of a, uh, a vision, a heavenly vision of what God wanted them to do in life, I grew up taught to doubt those things. And maybe you did too. I grew up in, an, in a Christian environment that said, eh, when somebody claims a miracle, when somebody claims a heavenly vision, you really need to immediately doubt that. It's probably not true. Sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's not. But my immediate knee-jerk reaction earlier on in life when someone said, yeah, God healed me, it was a miracle, or, yeah, I had this vision and, and God told me what to do and, and this is what I need to do, I would immediately think, that can't be true. That can't be true. Now, as I've gotten older, um, I'm a lot more hesitant to have that knee-jerk reaction. I'm no less inclined to verify it. Because I think that some, for whatever reason, falsely claim miracles or falsely claim visions. I don't know why they would. But I'm a lot less inclined to have that knee-jerk reaction that says, that can't be true. That can't be true. Because quite frankly... Many people whom I have great respect for have had miracles happen to them. One professor whom I have no reason to doubt has said that he has heard from God on occasion things that he is supposed to do. Those are bold claims. Jesus is making a bold claim here. Caiaphas says that can't be true. I'm not even going to consider it. What do we do when a fellow brother or sister in Christ makes a bold claim like that? A miracle? A vision? Do we dismiss it immediately without considering its merits? Or do we give time to consider what God might in fact be telling them or you? Caiaphas and company have no desire to weigh the merits of Jesus' claim. To them, the person who claimed to be Messiah, Son of God, was decidedly false. And so Caiaphas claims in verse 64, blasphemy. Blasphemy. And the loud, loud voices ring out in unison. Blasphemy. Blasphemy was a serious, serious charge. Usually this charge was ascribed to a person who either spoke ill of God or a person who actually claimed to have God's power to share in His nature. 
And it was not the first time that Jesus had been accused of blasphemy. In fact, let's, let's take a look in Mark chapter 2. Earlier on in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus claimed to have God's power. He, uh, he had healed a man on the Sabbath. And He had forgiven his sins. And the religious leaders, they said, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They accused Him of blasphemy because Jesus told a paralytic man, your, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus had ascribed to Himself the power that only God is to have over sins. And so they thought, blasphemy. Blasphemy is, one, when you claim to have God's power. But also, secondly, it's when you claim to share in God's nature. Notice this story. In John chapter 10, Jesus was claiming to share God's nature. And He said in verse 30 to a group of Jews gathered there, He said, I and My Father are one. That is to say, one in nature. And then the Jews took up stones to stone Him. And Jesus answered, For many, many good works have I shown you from My Father. For which of these works do you stone Me? And the Jews answered Him saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. For blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Claim to have God's power. Claim to share in His nature. And you will be considered blasphemous in the first century Jewish culture. Now obviously the Jews didn't stone Jesus in John 10. uh, Or else we wouldn't have the story of the crucifixion. Among the many reasons they didn't do so was because it was illegal for them to do so. Rome controlled Palestine. Caesar controlled Israel. And he had removed from Israel the right to capital punishment. The scepter had been taken from Judah. And so here in Mark 14, while Caiaphas and the religious leaders have heard Jesus make a claim that to them was blasphemous, that to them was deserving of death, they couldn't kill Him. Or at least they couldn't do so legally. So as they wait for daybreak, that they might bring Him before Pilate, the Jews detain Jesus, and instead they begin to beat Him. Notice verse 65. Then some began to spit on Jesus, and to blindfold Him, and to beat Him, and to say to Him, Prophesy! And the officers struck Him with the palms of their hands. The irony here, of course, with the word prophesy, the mocking tone of prophesy, who hit you? The irony is, of course, that Jesus' prophecies were coming true. Jesus had predicted His betrayal and His arrest. Jesus had predicted the false allegations and the charges. Jesus had predicted the mocking, the beating, and the spitting upon Him. He had predicted His coming suffering and death. And so while they, the Jews, struck Him and said, prophesy, who hit you? Jesus knew the name of the one who hit Him. And He knew the very hairs upon His head. Jesus' prophecies were coming true. And perhaps fittingly, the remaining verses in Mark, we move to a second story. 
fulfill yet another prophecy of Jesus. The prediction that Peter would deny Him three times. Take a look at verse 66. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself at the fire, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But Peter denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch and a rooster crowed. Jesus was falsely accused, we just saw, and he refused to dignify it with a response. Peter was rightly accused, and he immediately responded with a hastily contrived defense. This, this little girl who was accusing him, a, a servant of Caiaphas, in his house, had probably seen Peter with Jesus earlier in the week as Jesus was teaching in the temple. And she recognized Peter, and she began to call out, I, I know you. you, you were with Jesus. You were with Jesus of Nazareth, weren't you? In the temple, I remember seeing you there. And Peter now, who has undoubtedly heard the, the chance of blasphemy, who has undoubtedly heard from that outer courtyard what was going on inside the hall as Jesus was being accused and now beaten and mocked. Peter was undoubtedly fearful for his own life. He was in imminent danger to himself. Uh, in that environment, in that hostile environment of Caiaphas' home. And so, in the face of, of the threat to himself, in the face of fear, of reprisal, of punishment, of possibly even death for his association to a blasphemer, Peter says, I don't know what you're talking about. I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he quickly left the firelight so that his face could be hidden. But the girl is persistent. Notice verse 69. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, this, this is one of them. But Peter denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to, to Peter again, surely, surely you are one of them. For you are a Galilean and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear I do not know this man of whom you speak. Again, the girl follows Peter and says, I, No, you are one of them. You are one of Jesus's. And the girl is arousing the interest of others. Many people are beginning to pay attention now in the courtyard. Undoubtedly, those in the courtyard were from among the mob that had arrested Jesus, still holding swords and clubs. They too started looking intently at Peter's face, wondering, Have I seen that man before? And they were listening to with their ears to his North Galilean accent. They said, yeah, surely you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. Your speech shows it. And at this, this second and now third accusation, Peter begins to curse and to swear. The Greek word for swear there is uh, omnuo. It means to swear an oath. Peter is saying that, I, I don't know the man of whom you speak. I swear... To God, I do not know Him. And then that first word is a peculiar one. 
the word curse. It's anathematizo, where we get the word anathematize. It means to curse. It means to invoke a curse upon. And it's a, it's a peculiar, peculiar verb here, the first one, where it says Peter began to curse and swear. There are, I'm not going to go into it at great length, and there's great dispute here, but there are a lot of grammar issues with that word, which indicate that it is very unlikely that Peter is cursing himself. He's not invoking a curse upon himself there. He probably did that with the second verb, to swear. But in this first verb, Peter is cursing someone else. It's a transitive verb, and it takes a direct object. And it's very unlikely that Peter was cursing himself there, or else it would have indicated that he was doing so. And so most probably here, Peter is actually cursing either the group of people who are accusing him of associating with Jesus, or worse still, some scholars believe that Peter is actually cursing the very one they accuse Peter of associating with. That Peter's cursing Jesus. Now I know for some of you that, 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 just, doesn't, that just doesn't ring true. You, you, we don't have in our theology the idea that, well yeah, Peter denied Christ, but he didn't curse Christ, did he? Actually, the grammar allows for that possibility. And some say it's a probability. To be clear, we don't know who Peter cursed. We don't know who he cursed. Whether it was the group who accused him, whether it was the girl of the high priest, or whether he was cursing Jesus to demonstrate his dissociation from him. But one thing is clear. Peter wants no part of being associated with Jesus of Nazareth. And so he loudly and forcefully proclaims three times, I do not know this man. I have nothing to do with him. Once again, the loudest voice you hear may not be God's. And then, something happens as Peter denies Christ so very loudly. Verse 72 says, The second time the rooster crowed, and Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Faced with the real threat of, of reprisal. Faced with the real threat of a possible, possible death. Peter defied his Lord three times. And the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered his Lord's prophecy to him just hours ago. Just hours ago. And he wept tears of regret. It's easy uh, to, for us to scorn Peter's cowardice, right? It's easy for us to look back, uh, here we are 2,000 years removed, and think, I would not have done that. But faced with two options, what would you do? On the one hand, you can deny Christ and have your earthly life spared. Or on the other hand, you can affirm your faith in Jesus and potentially be executed. Those were the two options Peter had. It is as plain as that. And we might think, well, come on now. I, 
I'm not going to be faced with that scenario. There's, there's, I live in America. I live in a land of the freedom of religion. And I'm not going to be faced with that scenario. So this, this lesson doesn't really apply to me. Um, I'm in a safe place. Friends, don't be so quick to dismiss the possibility of this coming into your life one day. It happens all over the world. It's happening right now as I speak, somewhere, in some foreign country, most particularly the Middle East, many parts of Asia. There are many parts of Africa. There are places where this is a daily reality, a daily reality for Christians. And it happens here too. It happens here too. It wasn't but 10 years ago, on April 20th, 1999, that two high school students entered Columbine High School in Jefferson County, Colorado. And they were heavily armed, these two students. And they began shooting at teachers and students and administrators. They began shooting in this high school at anybody who was in their sight. One of the first persons who was shot that day at Columbine 10 years ago was a 17-year-old high school junior. Her name was Rachel Scott. And she was shot in the leg as she was eating lunch with a friend. And later, police evidence uh, would show that Rachel had been targeted by the shooters. She had been especially targeted by the shooters. Videotape evidence at the shooters' homes would later reveal that they had mocked Rachel and other students at Columbine on a videotape recording because they believed in Jesus Christ. They had mocked them in this videotape recording. And so the police uh, strongly speculate that, that Rachel, among others, was especially targeted by this group. And having been shot in the leg, one of the gunmen approached Rachel directly and asked her as she was bleeding, he said, do you still believe in God? And Rachel responded quietly and calmly, You know I do. And with that, the shooter shot Rachel a second time at point-blank range, instantly killing her. This is a story we all know about. I'm not telling you a story you don't know of. But it's one I don't think we remember very often. It only happened ten years ago. But we, 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 we block those moments out. It's not pleasant to think about. Um, and so we, we try to push that aside at times. But moments like Rachel Scott experienced some ten years ago, those moments happen today. They happen today all over the world. And at times they happen here. And the man who wrote the Gospel of Mark that we read this morning, John Mark, he wrote to a group of Christians for whom that was a daily reality. You see, the Christians to whom Mark wrote were under Emperor Nero's reign. And they had dozens of stories. Maybe hundreds of stories like Rachel Scott's. 
Mark wrote to a group of Christians who faced severe persecution. And they had friends and family members who died for their faith. They knew their lives were threatened. And so as they read Peter's story, as they read the story about Jesus' disciple denying his Lord, they would think to themselves, what will I say about Jesus Christ when my life depends on it? Will I deny Him? And if my, if my persecutors don't believe me, will I grow loudly in defiance and say even more boldly, I do not know this man, even cursing my Lord who purchased my salvation? Or when asked by my oppressor, do you still believe in Christ? Will I quietly and calmly respond, you know I still do. You know I still do. I assure you that on April 20th, 1999, Rachel Scott and 12 others had no idea that this would be their last day. I assure you she had no idea that on this day she would be faced with those two options. But she was ready. And Mark desperately wanted his audience to be ready. And I and the elders desperately want us to be ready. A closing uh, thought as we conclude this time. You know, today we saw many loud voices accuse and deny our Lord. And by their forcefulness, they achieved their objective. The, the council, the Sanhedrin, by their forcefulness, achieved a guilty verdict. Peter, by his forcefulness, achieved a spared earthly life. They won. They won the day. The loudest voice always wins. But, but the truth is, but, but, but truth is not measured by the increasing volume of a person's voice. Indeed, the loudest voice you can hear may not be God's. And Peter learned this all too well. He spoke so boldly, and yet he walked away weeping tears of regret because he had won the day. And so finally, may we learn from Peter's example knowing the potential, the real potential for future persecution, may we quietly and calmly resolve in our hearts now that we will affirm our faith in Jesus Christ no matter how loud, no matter how intimidating the voices around us demand that we dissociate or deny our Lord. May we affirm this now, in your heart now, so that you can be ready on the day that you are faced with those two options. I know we think we won't see that day. But neither did Rachel Scott. Friends, we need to be ready for that day. That day might come in our lifetime. Even here in, in America. That day might come. And so I want us to be ready. I want our voice not to be the loud voice that wins the day but to be the quiet, calm voice that when asked, do you still believe in Christ? We will turn to our oppressors and say, you know I do. You know I do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we are remiss to assume that we are 
incapable of being persecuted. Father, we, are, we would be remiss to think that even in this country, we might not one day face real and grave threats on our person, on our life, for believing in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And Father, we saw uh, Your sons, one of His closest disciples, fail that test. And He wept tears of regret. He repented. He turned His life around. We thank You for the example that Peter was thereafter. But Father, we want to make good on what Peter missed in his life. We want to be ready when persecution comes our way. So Father, prepare us for loud and intimidating voices. Prepare us when we're at work. Prepare us when we're with family or friends who mock our faith. Prepare us, Father, should that day ever come that our life is threatened because of our faith, that we might stand firm and declare boldly to our oppressors, you know we still believe in Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.